Hello, humans, hello, humans, hello, humans of the world. It is me, Ellie Krug, on Ellie 2.0 Radio on lovely AM 950. And no, there are no pre-recorded portions of this show because this show is live. You've got me live here on Saturday, January 15th, 2022. Ellie Krug here in the station, in the bunker, looking at Patrick, my producer. I am here. And you know what that means when my show is live? It means you can talk to me. <laughs> and you know what? I love listening to uh, hearing from my listeners. So here's the number, 952-946-6205. Um, <clears throat> remember, my show is about idealism and idealists. And, uh, you know, it would be great hearing from some other idealists in this world. It really would be. Um, uh, and because this is a live show, I've got a bit, a bit of a different format. I'm going to cover a lot of things here today. So today, I'm going to talk about a groundbreaking study of elected officials who are slaveholders, as reported in the Washington Post this week. An unbelievable study. And I'm going to talk about Amy Schneider, uh, the uh, Jeopardy champ who is uh, changing opinions about transgender people. And I'm if I've got time, I'm even going to give you a little bit of a movie review. And on top of all of that, <laughs> I will give you an update on my puppy, Jack. Yep, yep, Jack. Jack the Golden Retriever. And I'll also talk about a, a surprising and uh, very scary conversation I had with a late 20-something man uh, recently about uh, how he views uh, authoritarianism. But before we do all of that, okay... Let me talk about our featured idealist of the week. And this story I'm about to relate has some personal connections actually for me. As we have found so many times before, idealists arise uh, very often because of a personal hardship or experience that radically changes um, one's view of the world. It changes a person's perspective, makes them an idealist. And this week's idealist is one such person. I'm speaking of a woman named Heather Abbott, someone whom I'm sure almost all of you do not know. You've not heard her name. However, undoubtedly, you are familiar with the reason, the incident, the horror of why I'm speaking, speaking of Heather. And that incident would be the April 15, 2013 <clears throat> bombing in Boston um, during the Boston Marathon. You, will, you see, Heather was one of the thousands of people near the finish line for the Boston Marathon. And as she was standing there, <clears throat> off to her side, there was a bomb blast. She looked over to see that, what was going on, and then suddenly there was a second blast. That second blast blew Heather into a nearby restaurant. When Heather regained consciousness... Um, she saw that there was a smoky haze all around her. Her ears were ringing, and her left foot felt like it was on fire. And also all around her was blood. Later at the hospital, after four days and three surgeries, doctors came to Heather with the agonizing choice of whether to live with a lower left leg that would cause her unbelievable pain for the rest of her life, or to have her lower left leg amputated. With the advice of doctors and then some other amputees, uh, Heather chose to have her leg amputated below the knee. <clears throat> um, 
anybody knows about anything about amputations, uh, lower extremity amputations, um, a below-the-knee amputation is far more manageable than above-the-knee. Fast forward to recovery, and Heather learned the brutal truth about insurance companies and prosthetics, um, that insurers will only pay for one prosthetic, and often that prosthetic isn't nearly as functional as possible. Indeed, prosthetics that allow people to run, bike, um, ride, play basketball can cost up to $50,000, and insurers won't pay that cost. Now, I'm giving you this story about Heather Abbott because uh, she was a CNN hero, and I need to make sure that I give credit to CNN. There's a story about CNN um, that came out on October 8th of 2021, part of the CNN Heroes uh, series. Now, Heather got very lucky here because in one limited sense, there was a fund created for the Boston bombing survivors. And as a result, the insurance limitation was not an obstacle for Heather. And she now has actually several prostheses, um, one for running, one for being in the house, and another, a high heel leg with painted toes that allows her to wear high heels. Now, many people in Heather's circumstances would consider themselves lucky and leave it at that. But for Heather Abbott, the experience of losing her lower left leg was so, so very profound that she decided to help change the world for other amputees. She then went forward and founded the Heather Abbott Foundation. Will you remember that phrase? Remember that name? Heather Abbott Foundation, with the goal of providing funds um, to get past the insurance company blockade um, of just one minimalist prosthetic for other amputees. So she wanted to go and help other amputees. And thus, the Heather Abbott, Abbott Foundation has raised more than a million dollars to help provide customized, provide customized prosthetics to more than 40 amputees, like uh, Carrie Tickle who lost her leg in a lawnmower accident when she was only two years old. It turns out that Carrie, now an early teen, is quite the athlete who likes to run, bike, and shoot hoops. As a result of Heather's foundation, uh, Carrie was fitted with running a running blade beginning at age eight, <coughs> running blade prosthesis. Uh, uh, Carrie named her first blade Lightning. Here is what Heather Abbott told CNN um, when they named her a uh, CNN hero. Question from CNN. What inspired you to start this foundation? Answer. Back when I was in the hospital, the doctors, nurses, physical therapists, I began to understand the importance of their work. They've chosen careers that allow them to impact other people's lives in a very significant way. It made me think a lot about my career choice and what I was kind of focused on. My career didn't allow me the opportunity to really impact people's lives directly like that. So starting the foundation was a way for me to do that. It feels great to be able to experience the joy that other people feel when they realize they're going to get the prosthesis that they wanted. So the Heather Abbott Foundation, will you remember that? It's still, you know, it's the new year. I know people are like, I'm done writing checks, but can you write that name down for maybe the middle of the year or when you get your tax refund, Heather Abbott Foundation. Now, this story has um, some personal significance for me, and I'll tell you why. <clears throat> Back in my former life, when I still presented as a man and I was an attack dog trial lawyer in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, 
um, and in Boston to start out, I worked for railroads. I was a railroad lawyer and I was a railroad trial lawyer. And if you know anything about railroads, when people get involved with railroads, whether you try and hop a train or whether you're a trespasser cutting, cutting through a train and the train moves or whether you get involved in a car accident and <clears throat> the car gets mangled, people lose their limbs in railroad accidents. It's an unfortunate thing. And I've all, my heart always went out, even though I was representing and defending the railroad, my heart always went out to the people who were hurt. And as a result, I got to know um, quite a bit about the prosthetic world. Um, and uh, I, I got to know what prosthetic companies were good. I got to know what hospitals were good um, and rehab facilities were good to help people who were amputees. And, um, and all that came to bear back in uh, May of 2001. Um, now, at this point, by May of 2001, I'd been a trial lawyer for almost 20 years uh, representing railroads. And what happened in May of 21 in Iowa was that there was um, an 18-year-old woman. Uh, her name uh, was Lindsay, was and is Lindsay Thomas. And Lindsay Thomas had gotten in her car one night to go to work um, in, in Iowa um, and her drive took her, you know, through an area of, of uh, Iowa that was rural. You know, she went from a suburban area to another area to work, and, and she had to go through a little bit of rural area to get there. She lost control of her car. The car skidded off the highway, and it ended up in a culvert uh, that was partially filled with water. Lindsay was trapped in that car. Uh, it, her, uh, one of her legs was frac uh, double fractured. Um, she had facial injuries. Um, she survived by literally drinking the creek water um, for five days and had a blanket in the car. She was able to grab the blanket in the car and put that over her to survive hypothermia. But, and, and then road workers, um, you know, maintenance people on the road, they're doing their job and somehow they see the tracks leading off of the road into this culvert. They go down there and amazingly, Lindsay Thomas is still alive after five days stuck in that car. As a result of that accident, Lindsay um, lost both of her legs. They, both of her legs had to be amputated. Now this story was unfolding in Iowa. And now remember, I know about prosthetics and I know... Um, she was at the University of Iowa Hospital. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful hospital. It will save your life like no other place, okay? It's really good at that. It was not so good about prosthetics. You know, for the care after you get the amputation, they'll, they'll give you the amputation. They'll save your life. They'll do it, a, do it well. But after that, they weren't necessarily all that great. It was not a rehab hospital in that sense. And uh, it turns out that Lindsay Thomas is also a, a Korean adoptee, and both of my daughters are Korean adoptees as well. And, and so my heart really went out to this young lady. And I remember one morning I was at work. I had all these I had videos of, from different prosthetic companies and handouts and all that stuff because I needed to be aware of all of that for my job. And I, I bundled up some of those videos and some of those flyers and handouts about the organizations. I got in my car and I went down to the University of Iowa Hospital and I searched out Lindsay Thomas. As it turned out, she was being um, 
uh, uh, she was in a wheelchair. People were wheeling her around to get her some fresh air. And I ended up meeting her and her parents. And I gave them the prosthetic information that I had. I said, I know you don't know me. I'm a total stranger. But you don't know this, but I care about you. And here's what I know very quickly about prosthetics. Here's, some, here's a really great place in Oklahoma that does wonderful prosthetic work. And uh, please investigate it. I later heard from her parents, and, and they sent me a nice note to thank me for what I had done. Um, but later I heard, um, as I was researching for this story, that uh, Lindsay Thomas became a triathlete. Go figure. So, amputations. Very serious stuff. The idea that insurance companies give you the minimal and don't help you live full lives, again, unbelievable. My thanks to Heather Abbott for creating a foundation to help amputees. And uh, just the next time you see an amputee, all right, whether it's lower or upper extremity, just realize how their life is different than yours. Okay. All right, we're going to take a break. We'll come back. I've got more to give you. We're going to come back, and I don't know what I'm going to talk about yet. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. Okay, so call me, 952-946-6205. I would love to hear from my friends out there. You can talk about anything you want. Love to talk to you if you're an idealist. Thanks. Two-part radio. I had, if you've ever watched this show on uh, Facebook um, or Facebook Live or picked it up after it went into Facebook, uh, whatever, uh, you would see that I seat dance all the time when we have our bumper music uh, intake. And uh, right now, I just not only seat danced, but I got up and dance danced as the music was going on. So there you go. I'm having fun. It's Saturday. We survived this big snowfall out here. I live in Victoria. I don't know where you are, <laughs> but Victoria, we got meh, a good 10 inches. Yeah, at least. So, okay. Listeners, this is a live show. How often do you get to talk to me? Moi. Lovely Ellie Krug. Um, because, uh, yeah, there you go. So give us a call at 952-946-6205. I'd love to hear from you. And I'm going to talk with you very quickly now about Amy Schneider, the Jeopardy champ, the current continuing Jeopardy champ since uh, she began her reign, that would be the right word, on November 17th, 2021. She has won, um, I think, 34 games now 
um, in terms of a winning streak. She is one of the four most successful contestants. She's won over a million dollars. One of the four most successful contestants on the history of Jeopardy. Um, and, uh, and she's uh, number three in the number of games won. Uh, uh, but the reason I want to talk about Amy Schneider is because uh, she is um, transgender. Now, I did not realize that, and I did not understand that till she had been winning for a while. And I don't even know if I don't even know if much of the world understood that at first. Now, she is not, by the way, the first transgender person to ever be on the show. Um, in the '90s, there was somebody who was pre-transitioning, who's transgender, but had not yet transitioned, was on the show. And then in uh, December of 2020, uh, there was uh, uh, a woman named Kate Freeman, transgender, uh, who was on the show just for two shows. She won one day and then she lost the next. Kate Freeman, first open, openly transgender person to be on the show. So Amy Schneider's not making history that way. But what she is doing, what she is doing, she is beaming into the households of millions, millions of people who know nothing about transgender people. Now, uh, a little bit of the background about Amy Schneider. She is, uh, you know what, I don't know if I have her age, but she's got to be in her late 40s, early 50s. She's an engineering manager out of a company out of California. In eighth grade, Amy Schneider was, by her classmates, was voted most likely to appear on Jeopardy. <laughs> so it looks like that's exactly what she did. Um, and in uh, as she was beginning her run in 14 um, uh, games, uh, she only missed one question. I mean, obviously, she is brilliant. And obviously, way, 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 way smarter than Ellie Krug could ever be. But think about that. We have a transgender person, okay, coming into the homes of millions of Americans every night, people who love Jeopardy. And, you know, the people who, I mean, people of all walks, I mean, people of all political persuasions, people of all religious persuasions love Jeopardy. Jeopardy. And what do you know? We've got a transgender woman showing up, being a contestant on a game show. Um, she just happens to be transgender, but that's not why she's on the show. That's not why she's there. She's there because she's good. She's there because she's entertaining. She's got a sense of humor. And uh, you know what? This is the kind of thing for my community, transgender humans, non-binary humans, this is the kind of thing that really moves the needle. It is. It's not threatening. It's not scary. Doesn't have an agenda. And she's, and she's really interesting to watch. So for me as a transgender woman who um, <clears throat> sounds like a man on the radio, very unfortunately, if you ask me, but that's just the way it is. Um, for me, this is just a super big deal. And, you know, I go out and I train and I try and help people under, better understand what it means to be transgender as well as I talk, train about skin color and prejudice and all that kind of stuff. 
but and I've been doing that for 12 years in one form or another. Um, Amy Schneider, in less than two months, has accomplished more than I could ever hope for in my entire life. So I'm a little bit jealous about all of that, of course, but I'm also very happy for Amy Schneider because <clears throat> she deserves the more than a million dollars that she's already won and she deserves all of our respect. Okay, there you go. When we come back um, from our break, we got to take another break. Uh, I'm going to talk about uh, slaveholders who are elected to political office. There are a whole lot of them, way more than I ever imagined. Okay, you're listening to me, Ellie Krug, on LA 2.0 Radio. If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. We'll be back. And we're back, LE 2.0 Radio on AM 950. Um, I've got to tell you, I would love to hear from at least one listener, 952-946-6205. Please give me a call. Um, but now uh, I want to talk about uh, a Washington Post um, study that came out this week. Um, it is a study that, uh, that the title of it, I mean, the, the tagline, the thing that got my attention was, quote, more than 1,700 congressmen once enslaved black people. This is who they were and how they shaped the nation. And then it goes on to say, the Washington Post has compiled the first database of slaveholding members of Congress by examining thousands of pages of census records and historical documents. This landed in my computer, I think, on Tuesday or Wednesday of this week. And I, I put everything down immediately. And I went through it and read it. And I've got to tell you, now remember, I mean, I just told you that I've been training on diversity and inclusion for a dozen years. Um, and so, and some would consider me an expert in the field, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I've got to tell you, I had no, no idea, no idea about the extent to which slavery, owning of humans, was embedded, embedded into our government, our governmental leaders. So here's some information. You ready? As of March 7th, 1850, because remember, this is, there was a big debate going on in the late 1840s and certainly into the early 1850s and, and, much, and even much stronger as we got towards 1860 about slavery. It, as of March 7th, 1850, as Congress was debating slavery <clears throat> and Daniel Webster spoke against it, 46 of 106 congressmen so that's all that there were in the House of Representatives at the time. 46 of 106 congressmen, they were all men, by the way, nearly half owned other humans. 
That included Jefferson Davis, Andrew Johnson. By the way, Andrew Johnson later became president um, when um, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, and Sam Houston. All told, 1,700-plus congressmen um, and uh, one congresswoman. Uh, we'll get to that, or you'll find out that she was, uh, she was designated after her husband had died in office. All told, 1,700 congressional representatives were slave owners. Enslavers represented 37 states. So that's, that was not just the South, but every state in New England— and much of the Midwest, like Illinois and Iowa. And Minnesota, by the way, we used to have Southerners, even though Minnesota was a free state, Southerners would come up the Mississippi River um, uh, in the summertime to escape the heat in the South. And they would stay in Minneapolis, in St. Paul, you know, river towns. They would bring their enslaved servants, their enslaved humans with them. And the, the total history of enslaved humans being in Minnesota. Um, for the first 18 years of our country, more than half of the men elected to Congress were slave owners. And, after the, and as the Civil War was raging, okay, there was still 20% of the congressmen who, as the Civil War was going, still 20% of the congressmen were slaveholders because there were slaveholders... There were, in free states, so there were slaveholders in Virginia, for ex- excuse me, in, in um, Maryland, for example. In Delaware, there were slaveholders. After the Civil War, enslavers continued to be elected. So you have the Civil War, it happens, okay, you have Reconstruction where, um, where a lot of uh, white slave owners were not allowed to serve, okay? And then Reconstruction ended, and then they started getting elected to Congress, okay? Um, enslavers continued to be elected after the Civil War, and that extended all the way into the 20th century. So, for example, uh, William, uh, the study, uh, I'm quoting now from the study, William Richardson, for example, a Democrat who fought for the Confederacy, died in office in 1914 after representing Alabama for 14 years. So in 19, as of 1914, okay, we're talking 20th century, you have in Congress somebody who owned black humans, Another Democrat, Rebecca Latmer Felton, so this is the woman who was, who, uh, was appointed to fill a Senate vac- vacancy. Um, she was a suffragist and a white supremacist. Uh, she was appointed to fill a Senate vacancy in 1922 and briefly represented Georgia at age 87. The first woman to ever serve in the Senate was a former slaveholder. The most common political affiliation, I'm continuing to read from the study, the most common political affiliation among enslavers was Democratic Party. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, you just heard that on AM 950. More than 600 Democrats in Congress were slaveholders. Um, while the early Republican Party was associated with abolition, the Washington Post found that more, hundred, more than 480 slave owners who identified as Republicans at some point um, in their elected careers. So 480 Republicans who made it to Congress were also slave owners. Think, will, will you, can, can you think about this? 
you know, I think that, you know, that the common fallacy is, okay, you know, we had, yes, we had Washington and Jefferson, you know, they were slaveholders, but, but, you know, but as, as, con- as our country got smarter and, and more mature, that slavery by elected officials, you know, the, the fallacy, I think the common belief is that, well, that, that wasn't, that all fell away. We're talking 1,700 congressmen owned other humans. Um, as uh, uh, of the first 18 U.S. presidents, 12 of them were enslavers. So the first 18, what are we on? We're on 46. So that's what, a third? A third of presidents were enslavers. And that included eight presidents who were slaveholders during their presidency. So while they are in office, they are owning black humans who are considered property at that time. And it pains me so much to say that. It really does. Um, I see that uh, we've got Walt on the line. Uh, Walt, you want to talk about Emmett Till's mother? Hello, Ellie? Yes. Hey, Walt, how are you? I, thanks. Uh, I'm, I'm happy, and you? I'm good. I'm good. Okay, my best to you in 22, and uh, thank you for the show. And I have a comment you made reference a week or two ago about the woman in uh, Hastings uh, being kind. Yes, Kelsey when Waits. I thought, I thought of that, I thought of Emmett Till's mother and the amount of uh, forgiveness she was capable of doing, and that she was interviewed by Studs Terkel, a rather well-known Chicago yep. uh, radio sure. person. Yep. Have you had an occasion to read that? I have not. Uh, I did not. I know who Studs Terkel is. He did a great, uh, he wrote a great book about working uh, people. Um, but I did not see what he what he had gotten for an interview. Okay, from... I'm pulling your sleeve if you have a chance, but be prepared to cry. Okay, and you'll be happy. <laughs> okay, all right. Thank thank you very much. Thank you, thanks, Walt. I'll check that out and making a note about it. Okay. Uh, all right. So, listeners, I love hearing from my listeners and see you educate me. So, um, uh, hold on, I'm making a note. Um, okay, so give us a call. I'd love to hear from you again, 952-946-6205. Um, let me continue, though, talking about how slavery was so infused into our early government going into the early 20th century. Um, uh, as they were voting on the 13th Amendment, okay, so this is as the Civil War is going on, they're voting on the 13th Amendment. That would be to end slavery. Nine men who had been slaveholders in the Senate um, were part of that vote, okay? So as that vote is going on, nine, nine of the senators at the time had been slaveholders, and only three of the nine voted for the 13th Amendment. So only a third of the slaveholders in Congress voted to end slavery, and senators voted to end slavery. Think about that. Think about how just by numerical numbers, had they been greater, we wouldn't have the 13th Amendment. Um, This uh, initiative by the Washington Post is the product of a huge research initiative going to 200 courthouses to look at tax records, probate documents, and census uh, data. 
Um, think of all of the buildings, towns, counties, all of the things named for enslavers. Minneapolis, formerly Lake Calhoun. We've got uh, enslavers' names on buildings at the University of Minnesota. And think about much of the whitewash, okay? All right? About how, of how this does not come out. You had to do all of this research to find out. So, for example, okay, uh, the, the report from the Washington Post goes on to say, the database helps reveal the glaring holes in many of the stories that Americans tell about the country's history. For example, they cite this, the opening page of Representative Charles Minor's 1916 biography said, quote, he made the first persistent, long-continued effort on the floor of the House looking toward the final extinction of slavery. Before this article, that is, the Washington Post article was published, his Wikipedia page began by introducing him as an anti-slavery advocate. As the Washington Post goes on to say, quote, nowhere on that page or in the biography's lengthy discussion of Miner's repeated efforts as a congressman in the 1820s to outlaw slavery in the District of Columbia, did it mention that Miner himself enslaved eight people, according to the 1810 census, when he was a 30-year-old newspaper publisher in Pennsylvania. So we don't know the complete real story here, folks. The Washington Post has just blew the, as far as I'm concerned, blew the lid off of history for us to understand how, sorry, that sounded very masculine, but how deeply ingrained slavery, the owning of humans, was in our country. It is appalling. And we continue to see the effects of that today in 2022. Unbelievable. Okay. Well, go check out Washington Post study in, uh, re congressional representatives enslaved humans. That's all you have to Google. It'll come up to you. All right. When we come back from our break, I'm going to talk about a conversation I had with a young human and give you a Jack the Dog update. And we're back. Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug. Okay. Um, now, I think it's very easy for us to live in kind of bubbles where we know the same people, we listen to the same news, um, we, you know, we don't get our perspective expanded very much. I try and fight that. I'm not very successful at times, but I do try and fight that. And so one of the ways I try and fight it is by trying to ask young people about what's going on in their heads, what's important to them. And uh, without getting into names or the specifics um, of the person, I was speaking to a gentleman, late 20s, um, recently. And uh, it was a nice conversation, but at one point in the conversation, we got on to what was going on in our country, and I... I asked this gentleman, I, I posed to him this question, essentially, um, what if we had an authoritarian 
government where you did not have the right to vote, where essentially everything was rigged to keep the government in place, to keep the strong man in place. But you had, but everything else worked. I mean, you still go to Target. You could still, you know, order whatever you wanted to online. You know, restaurants would still be open. Everything would be going, you know, functioning just otherwise, every, otherwise normally, except your vote would not count. You'd really not, we wouldn't be a democracy anymore. And that gentleman, that young gentleman told me, I'd be okay with that. I almost fell out of my chair. And that made me wonder, what are our young people thinking? Now, I'm, you know, I'm talking young people, not from marginalized communities, young people who have great privilege. What are they thinking? I mean, do they even care about the right to vote? Do they even care if there's a dictator running the U.S. and we're no longer a democracy? So I, you know, what I suggest, okay, um, is, is that if you've got a, you know, uh, a 20-something or a young 30-something in your life, why don't you pose that scenario to them? You know, hey, everything's going to function. Still go to Target, don't worry. Still be stuff on the shelves, all of that stuff. It'll all be good post-COVID. Well, you know, we'll get there someday with post-COVID. All be good. But we'll have a dictator as a president. And you won't have the right to vote. You're, if there's a right to vote, it's, it's not going to count. It's just going to be like the way it works in Russia. You know, 99% for Vladimir. Um, pose that to them. See what they have to say. Uh, to me, it's scary as heck. To me, it reflects that the Dems have, I mean, my God, uh, the Democrats have just done such a horrible job of messaging. You know, I mean, Dr. King said it's, you know, so much easier to, you know, to rally around hate than it is around love. I just paraphrased. Um, and, and, and the Demo, the, the Demo, the Demo, they don't, just don't have it in themselves, okay, to distort facts. They don't have it in themselves to, 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 to go after people they, that, because it's not in the nature of, not in the nature of decent people to do that. And I just, I, I, I'm just scared to death. I am. I, I, if that's what, you know, and I'm going to be asking that question of a whole lot more young people, trust me. But if I find that that's the consensus, we're sunk, everyone. We are. We're, we're you know, and I, I, I try to be an optimist and, and not a Debbie Downer. And uh, yeah, I worry quite a bit. Yep, yep, that would be me. Okay. But that's the trial lawyer in me. I'm always trying to anticipate things over the hill, get prepared, plan. Um, but I don't know. Okay. All right. Well, um, so find the young person in your life, ask them that question and see what they have to say. All right. Jack update. Jack the pup. I got my puppy, my golden retriever. He's an English cream golden retriever. So he's all white. He's got, 
you know, black nose and, you know, blackness around his eyes. He looks a lot like a polar bear, particularly a, polar, a little polar bear cub, particularly in the snow. He is eight months old. He is uh, on a scale of being trained. Uh, if 100% is fully trained and zero is not trained, he's probably in the 40 to 50% range. Okay. Forget about recall. There's no way. This dog, this morning I let him out. I'm like, okay, Jack, I'm not going to go out. You go out. I'll watch you. And then I'll, you know, he loves to, to eat. And so all you have to do is yell chow to him and, and that'll get him going. But this morning when it was below zero and I let him out, Jack decided he was not only going to, after he got done doing his, his stuff, that he wanted to go investigate the bird feeder in the adjoining yard, uh, which meant I had to quickly get my boots on, my coat on, and run out and grab that boy and put a, uh, put a leash on him because he didn't have a leash. So, but he's a good boy. He is. Every morning I wake him up. He grabs a stuffed animal. He's got that little tail wagging, 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 wagging. Sometimes it's thumping against something. And he's got this huge stuffed animal in his, and it, all he's doing, all he wants to do is see me get petted and just, yeah, it's just amazing. Okay. So he's a quite the pain in the butt because I have to take him out multiple times in sub-zero weather, but he's a great dog. Now, if any of you are looking for a puppy, the breeder that gave me Jack, she is located north of Des Moines. So she's not, it's down in Iowa. She is a wonderful, wonderful breeder. She gives these dogs incredible loving care. Um, she, to professional standards. The dogs are well taken care of medically as well as psychologically. Um, Jack's mom just has, just had a litter, 11 pups. And uh, the breeder still has multiple pups available. Now, of course, there's a price and, you know, all cost and all that kind of stuff. If you have an interest, though, in, a, in great genes, very well-behaved, low-key, golden retriever, um, please uh, reach out to me. I'll get you contacted with the breeder. Um, email me at ellieJ, E-L-L-I-E-J, Krug at gmail.com, and I'd be happy to connect you with the breeder if you have an interest. Okay, that's going to do our show. I've got to give a big thanks to Patrick, um, my producer, who had to do a little bit of math today. He did good. Walt, thank you for calling. I'm going to follow up on that Studs Turkle interview. And to my listeners, listen. Um, I'm going to be doing uh, a far more number of live shows coming up. So just so you know, um, please do me this favor, will you? Between now and when you hear my voice next, will you go out and do something to make the world a better place? Will you? Because God knows we got to be doing it. Okay, thanks. Have a great week. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.